The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So there's this pretty strong implication that individuals should be able to recognize for themselves when their natural rights are being threatened. And that in combination with this argument that when your natural rights are threatened, you should use any means necessary to protect them, really leads to this situation where Oath Keepers implicitly encourages people to identify moments for themselves that warrant violent resistance. And I think that really kind of creates this this context where individuals feel empowered to choose for themselves whether to use violence, to think for themselves about whether natural rights are being violated or whether something rises to the level of tyranny. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, March 18th, 2022. In the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol riot, one of the groups receiving the most attention for its participation in the insurrection on the Hill was the Oath Keepers, a right-wing extremist group that's been in existence since 2009, but it's taken on an increased public profile since the riot last year. And in early January, the group's leader, Stuart Rhodes, along with 10 others, was indicted in U.S. federal court for seditious conspiracy in connection with the Capitol breach. So today, I decided to sit down with Sam Jackson, an assistant professor at the University of Albany and the author of a 2020 book about the Oath Keepers and their ideology. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 18th, all about the Oath Keepers. All right, Sam, so I want to start with the origin story of the Oath Keepers. So when did the group start and and how did it get started? So the group formally launched in uh, 2009, um, on April 19th, 2009, actually. Their first public event was a muster on the Lexington Green outside of Boston, where a number of the influential early members of the organization, as well as just some, some standard supporters, came out to hear a bunch of speeches by different people affiliated with the group and, and even some who weren't necessarily affiliated and and the tenor of that day was very much pointing to things that that oath keepers as an organization saw as threats coming from the government threats of government overreach threats of tyranny and what what's interesting about that date and location is um the founder and president of the group Stuart Rhodes would would later say that he specifically chose the date and location to draw parallels with the Revolutionary War and the first battle of that war that was fought there. He said that just as would-be Americans on that day fought off British tyranny, Americans today should be ready to fight off a tyrannical government in the form of the, the federal government. And so we'll we'll dive into a lot of this, and you even hinted at a bit of it in your first answer, but how would you characterize the Oath Keepers? Like, what would your top-line summary of, of what the group is be? I describe Oath Keepers as an anti-government extremist organization within the patriot slash militia movement. And both of those are subcategories of what I think of as right-wing extremism in the U.S. And so, Sam, since the group started almost 13 years ago, I gather that it's it's grown a bit. So could you give us a sense of how big the group is today and you know, to the extent that we know how big it is and, and how did it you know, accumulate the membership numbers? It turns out that's actually a really difficult question to answer. Watchdog organizations and researchers have have pointed out for a number of years that we, we don't have reliable information on 
let's say the number of members in the group. And we don't even have robust data on the number of chapters or, or the geographic reach of the group or things like that. Since about 2013 or 2014, uh, the group has claimed to have 35,000 dues paying members in that area. There have been some recent leaks of membership lists that have between 30 and 40,000 names on them, but it seems like those leaked lists are, are actually lists of everyone who has ever been a dues paying member of the organization and not a snapshot of the current membership at any one time. So that's 40,000 people who have ever paid dues even once to the group. Uh, watchdog organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League estimate that the number of current dues paying members at any one moment has never been more than a couple thousand. And I think this will become helpful context as we move forward. So I want to introduce the character of Stuart Rhodes, who's the, the head of the Oath Keepers now subject of an indictment in, in U.S. federal court. But I wonder if you could talk a bit just to you know give some backstory here. Who is Stuart Rhodes and to what extent you know is the Oath Keepers tied to the, the person of Stuart Rhodes? So Stuart Rhodes is the founder and president of the organization. Before he launched the organization, he uh, actually joined the army I think right after high school, he was an army paratrooper until he was injured in a training exercise. Later, he went to college at UNLV and, and then later went to law school at Yale Law School, um, where he graduated in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, I believe. He was periodically a volunteer for then Congressman Ron Paul during Paul's uh, presidential campaign in 2008. I believe he also actually worked for Paul's office in Washington, D.C. for some time. Um, and he decided prior to the 2008 presidential election, actually, that he wanted to found this organization that would encourage current and former members of the military to honor their oaths to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, among other things. I, I'll note really carefully there, though, that his interpretation of what it means to honor that oath is probably quite a bit different than how many of us would understand that. And he says in the some early conversations that he was having with friends before the group actually launched, he was talking with a friend who was a police officer in the Las Vegas area who said, basically, law enforcement swears a similar oath when we join those professional organizations. So maybe your organization that you're about to launch should be not just about current and former military, but also current and former law enforcement. So uh, Rhodes and, and his friends um, decided to, to join forces and, and launch this organization. They say that they decide, they made the decision to form the organization before the 2008 election took place. So before we would find out that Barack Obama had been elected over John McCain, and he, he sort of makes that point to try to provide evidence, I guess, for, for his argument that Oath Keepers is a nonpartisan organization, um, that it's not closely affiliated with the Republican Party. And, you know, there's, there's some validity to that. But Oath Keepers is nonpartisan in the sense that they think that the Republican Party is inadequately faithful to the, the founding values of the nation and things like that as the organization sees it. And he's formally, one of the things that I thought was an interesting, you know, comment in the book is that he is formally inscribed in the bylaws of the organization. Is that right? He is. So the bylaws describe him as president for life unless he resigns or is found incompetent by the board of directors. So you noted in the introduction that Rhodes is currently under indictment under federal seditious conspiracy charges. And as of now, he is he has been denied bail. He is um, in pretrial detention. When it was announced, wh when he was first arrested, the general counsel for the organization, um, a woman named Kelly Sorrell, announced that she was taking over as interim president. And when Rhodes was denied bail, she then announced that someone else would be taking over leadership of the group longer term. I haven't seen any information about who that is. 
And it will be really interesting to me to see whether that is a, a more durable or lasting change of leadership, or if it's very carefully described as just a temporary measure until such a time as, as Rhodes is no longer in jail and is able to actually run the organization again. Before we move on and talk a bit about the ideology of the group, I, I want to spend a second on sort of the way that you constructed the book. So you, you have an interesting bit in the introduction about your methodology for researching the book and, and what your central source was and what you grounded, you know, the 250 plus page book was, was grounded in a very sort of in one particular type of source. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and about sort of what that fact reveals about, you know, the Oath Keepers as an organization. So for the the book, I was really interested in exploring this question about how Oath Keepers tries to make sense of the world that its members live in and uh, how they decided what action was appropriate to take and, and what would be effective. And perhaps most importantly, um, it seems to me that an organization like Oath Keepers which so often is heavily armed and advocates for some pretty radical ideas, the organization has a legitimacy deficit. You might think of it that way. They have a difficult task of convincing the American public that the organization is not only acceptable, but is actually respectable and is a a good example of citizenship in this country. So I realized that perhaps one of the best ways to study how the group communicates with a large public audience about how it perceives the world and and what sorts of things factor into decisions that the organization makes about activity is to examine the content that Oath Keepers produces and shares directly online. Given the world that we live in today, a lot of organization and, and mobilization and teaching and recruitment and all these sorts of things happen online. That's certainly not the only place where these things happen, but for sure the online realm was important for Oath Keepers. And it was a place where they had direct control over their messaging. So for the book, I looked at um, the full history of the Oath Keepers website up until early 2016. um, And I also looked at the the blog that the group ran before it launched its website, the blog that Stuart Rhodes ran, as well as three YouTube channels that seem to be controlled by the organization itself. I think that's a really nice place to sort of jump into talking about the ideology of the group. So when you were, you know, looking on the website and, you know, reading through all these documents, what did your sense become of how the Oath Keepers fits into sort of the broader constellation of right-wing extremist movements in the U.S.? So um, earlier I mentioned that I think of Oath Keepers as belonging to part of the far right that I refer to as the Patriot slash Militia Movement. Others, other scholars and researchers uh, might just call this the, the Militia Movement or the Patriot Movement. It can go under a host of other names. But this broader movement, and certainly this is true for Oath Keepers as well, is really motivated by a two-part argument. Um, The first is that the government, primarily the federal government, but in some cases also state and local governments, are becoming more and more tyrannical. And the second part of that argument is that good patriotic Americans need to be ready to resist that tyrannical government, possibly even with the use of force. So Oath Keepers certainly buys into this, and you can see throughout um, different documents that they produced and materials that they shared these perceptions of threat coming from the government around things like gun control and climate change mitigation policies and public health measures. You can see that the organization perceives all of these different issues as ways that the government can infringe on the rights of Americans and make them easier to control. So Oath Keepers talks about that part of the oath that military and law enforcement take to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Oath Keepers is primarily focused on the domestic threats rather than the foreign threats. That's not 
exclusively true. They also think about foreign threats a little bit, but they are much more focused on the domestic threats. And and those domestic threats, at least in their accounting of things, can both be from the government, but also to the government. Is that right? I, I think the threats that they perceive are threats to the constitution and to founding values and not necessarily to government. So one thing that Rhodes is fond of saying um, over the years is that oath that you take is not to the president and it's not to your commanding officers. If you're in the military, it is to the constitution. This gives him a sort of line of argumentation to say that the most patriotic thing that you can do is resist government. And by and large, the threats that Oath Keepers describes come from government or would come from government. This gets a little bit complicated when we start thinking about their support for the presidency of Donald Trump, which was this period of time where in the view of Oath Keepers, in the view of Stuart Rhodes and and others, um, government was much more in line with constitution and therefore to be an enemy of the constitution was also to be an enemy of, of the Trump administration. But we can see even then that they still were quite concerned about threats coming from government. And you can see that in rhetoric about the deep state, for example, and sort of conspiracy theories about civil servants um, in bureaucratic positions, subverting the the Trump administration or, or even the Constitution. And so reading through the book, one thing that pops up a few different times is the Oath Keepers, you know, one locus of their attention is perceived overreach on behalf of on behalf of regulatory agencies within the executive branch, right? So whether that be you know the Bureau of Land Management or, or different components of the federal government that many of us may not spend a lot of time thinking about, but mm. have at different episodes sort of preoccupied the imagination of the Oath Keepers. I wonder if you could just give, by way of illustration, maybe talk about one or two of those different episodes. Sure. So it, it's not necessarily a discrete moment, but one of the agencies that time and again gets the attention of Oath Keepers is the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives now. One of the things that Oath Keepers focuses about in terms of the ATF is they anticipate that ATF agents will be involved in door-to-door gun confiscation because at some point they've been predicting for the past 13 years plus some government actor, some decision maker is going to allegedly violate American Second Amendment rights and is going to come confiscate weapons with no no legal justification. Um, this also relates, though, back to standing tropes within the Patriot slash militia movement who have long worried about the ATF, who have even fantasized about getting in shootouts or, or perhaps just uh, intimidating ATF agents with firearms. And of course, ATF also goes back to two really foundational moments from the 90s for this broader movement, which would be the the Waco standoff and the Ruby Ridge standoff as well. These two moments from the 90s where the ATF and other federal law enforcement decided to engage in pretty aggressive action to try to carry out search warrants or or compel individuals to appear before court when they weren't inclined to do so. And since then, the ATF and to a lesser extent, other agencies like the FBI have really been depicted as tyrannical agencies by those within the Patriot slash militia movement. And so a related concept that, you know, again, pops up a bunch of times in your book and seems to be a a sort of core tenant of the way that the Oath Keepers think about themselves is this notion of natural rights that, you know, Stuart Rhodes and and other adherents of this ideology have a certain view about what are natural rights that that people are entitled to and ought to be protected. Could you talk through, you know, what does that word mean in the Oath Keepers context? And what's it, what sort of ideological runway does it give the Oath Keepers? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. I think it's great, as you could probably guess, based on the fact that I have a Book in the uh, a chapter in the book all about natural rights. So early in in my project, looking at them, I at the organization, I saw this language of natural rights used 
over and over again. And there, there often wasn't a lot of explanation around the term. So you would see statements like when your natural rights are, are threatened by tyrannical government, it is your right as a human being to resist those violations of your rights by whatever means necessary. That language of natural rights, that phrase is really interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One is because, at least to my ears, it, it very clearly is a reference to the founding era of the country and to a lot of the rhetoric that was used in various materials that, that sort of justified the revolution and called for the independence of what were then the colonies in North America from the British crown. So there was this very clear, um, in, in my mind, callback to this previous moment of political conflict in American history that is almost universally recognized to be justified and righteous within the American political memory in a sort of general sense. But one of the other things that was so interesting to me about that phrase, natural rights, is the very fact that the Oath Keepers never define what natural rights are or tell you how to know when your natural rights are violated. In a couple of places, the group points to a few examples of natural rights, particularly referring to things that are protected within the Bill of Rights. So First Amendment protections and Second Amendment protections and, and others as well. But when they're giving those examples, they are often, the, the group is often very careful to say, this is just a partial list of your rights. You can't turn to, let's say, the Bill of Rights to find a comprehensive list of all of your natural rights. It only contains some of them. So there's this pretty strong implication that individuals should be able to recognize for themselves when their natural rights are being threatened. And that in combination with this argument that when your natural rights are threatened, you should use any means necessary to protect them really leads to this situation where Oath Keepers implicitly encourages people to identify moments for themselves that warrant violent resistance. And I think that really kind of creates this, this context where Individuals feel empowered to choose for themselves whether to use violence, to think for themselves about whether natural rights are being violated or whether something rises to the level of tyranny. And that really creates a situation where individuals could and have indeed decided to engage in various forms of political violence under their own initiative. And what are the like didactic vehicles that these ideas are conveyed by, right? Like this is sort of on the one hand, it's you know it's not a terribly complicated idea, not a terribly complicated ideology. But on the other hand, like it does require some thinking through and some you know you spent five minutes explaining through it and, and talking through it. So, what's your sense of how the sort of hierarchy of the oath keepers? How do they get these ideas out there, and how do they sort of teach? adherence of, of this ideology that this is like how they ought to feel, right? And that this is sort of the core tenant of the group. Is it just through the website? Are there sort of more individualized instruction vehicles? Or are they sort of just counting on people will be animated by some vague sense that this is the correct way to think about things? So one thing that we can see within Oath Keepers is a little bit less ideological cohesion than there might be among some other smaller and more militant cell-like groups. What I mean by that is we can see some members of Oath Keepers who spend a lot of time thinking about political philosophy in a certain sense. Stuart Rhodes is certainly an example of this, where you can see him philosophizing about natural rights or um, attempting to parse speeches or letters written by um, the founders um, and spending a lot of time really thinking about political ideas and the ramifications of those political ideas. But I think it is very safe to say that others who are members of this group or maybe not members but are supporters of the group haven't spent a lot of time thinking about those political ideas. Perhaps they engage with natural rights 
as an idea in a very thin way of sort of uh, a lowest common denominator of I have the right to defend my natural rights without really engaging in more thought about what those natural rights are. Which is to say that that the organization doesn't necessarily have a strictly regimented education plan or indoctrination plan or whatever you want to call it. They post a lot of, or in the past, they have posted a lot of content to their website and some to their YouTube channel as well. And the, the blogs that I mentioned earlier that engage with these political ideas in a really detailed and at times laborious way. At other times, some of the other content is is much thinner and shallower and is much more about contemporary events and thinking through tactics and identifying threats and, and those sorts of things without necessarily engaging in the deeper ideology of the group. And to a certain extent, I think this is pretty deliberate by Oath Keepers. Um, I think that they want to be a relatively big tent organization that has room for people who are perhaps in the libertarian end of the Republican Party all the way through to conspiracy theorists who are convinced that chemtrails associated with planes are a government plot to poison you or control you, or uh, the COVID-19 vaccinations are, are plots to inject nanobots into your body and control you, or climate change mitigation policies are plots by the government meant to force rural people into countries, uh, into cities rather, so that they can control you. Oath Keepers at different times promotes different types of documents and different types of digital content that speak to these different audiences. And I think they really do so in a way that that creates an opening for that full range of people to be involved. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And the, the last part of your answer there raises another interesting question. You've, over the course of this conversation and also in the book, have characterized the way that the Oath Keepers see threats as perceived threats, right? So these aren't actually in any, they don't have to be in any material sense, real and obvious and unimpeachable, but it's, it's rather this notion that it's up to people who are, you know, ad adherents of this ideology or sort of adjuncts to this group to perceive and, and be on the hunt for things that are, you know, that might be awry and might be a threat to these these rights. I wonder if you could talk through a bit, like, why is it so important to frame everything in the language of perceived threats, right? Like, why is that the perception quality of things so important to the way that the Oath Keepers operate? I really like this question. This is a, a, an issue that I like to think about a lot. And I, I try to emphasize it when I'm talking to students about thinking about like terrorism and political violence and, and other sorts of related things. So in addition to that perception of threats, another phrase that I sometimes use is imagined but not imaginary threats, um, which is meant to be a, a callback to Benedict Anderson's famous imagined communities, where uh, he lays out this argument that national identity is, is on the basis of communities that people believe to exist in their heads. And what's important is that they, they believe them to exist, not whether some external observer might identify the same community. And it's very much the same sort of thing with the threats that Oath Keepers perceive. We can sit here as external observers and say, the perceived threat of gun control is incredibly unlikely, if not flat out outlandish. But if we take that view, and if we focus on that too much, on the, the sort of 
gap that we might see between the perception of threat and the empirical reality that, that many of us might observe around that same issue, well, we might be led to believe that, that people who believe in that threat or who, who perceive that threat are illogical or irrational or mentally unwell or, or something like that. But to me, what's really important is thinking through not necessarily what led to those perceptions of threat, but what the perceptions of threat do and what kinds of actions they can motivate or justify. If you believe that government is going to come to your door to confiscate your weapons, well, that's going to motivate certain kinds of behavior. That's going to lead you to take certain kinds of behavior that you might not take if you don't believe that gun control is going to happen. And you're going to take that behavior no matter how likely the rest of us think it is that the government's actually going to come to your door and try to take your assault rifle. Yeah. And I mean, hearing the way you talk about the sort of organizational structure of the group, it makes me wonder how much does that sort of perception model dovetail with like the actual structural setup of the group, right? Like there's a way in which I would think that the sort of the framing of everything and through the lens of perception and that people need to be vigilant and, you know, everyone needs to be on the lookout for threats that does lend itself to a sort of decentralized operational model, right? Where like there may be some main ideology, but the the actual actions are taking place more on the local or individualized level. Does that, has that historically been how things have played out? It, it certainly has. So when I think about the organization, I tend to draw a distinction between national leadership and state and local chapters, or, or perhaps I should say the national organization versus state and local chapters. The national organization is really driven or led by Stuart Rhodes and other national leaders, primarily Stuart Rhodes, but to a lesser extent, some others. And the national organization is responsible for what we could think of as the branding of the group. So the national leadership controls the website, which is one vehicle for the group to promote its ideas and to get its name out there and to control the narrative around itself. But state and local chapters seem to have a lot of autonomy to decide what actual activities to engage in. So one of the things that people sometimes ask me is how the Oath Keepers organization recruits people to join. And on the one hand, there are these sort of big and and not particularly structured recruitment drives from national leadership that are much more about broadly aimed public messaging campaigns. But state and local chapters have the autonomy to decide, are we going to set up a table at some civic event? Are we going to go to our local American Legion and try to recruit vets? Are we going to go to a shooting club and and perhaps have our members who are also members of that shooting club try to recruit people on a one-to-one basis at, at those types of locations? So there's a lot of autonomy for these state and local chapters to decide what to do. And the exception comes when a state or local chapter gets involved in something or, or proposes something that would be rather high profile, in which case national leadership might get involved and either say yes or no. But what this means is that there's a lot of room for individual chapters to decide we're going to arm up and support this local Islamophobic march, or we're going to go out and provide armed security for military recruiting centers, or even when national leadership calls for a relatively specific set of actions, like in the 2016 presidential election, the the group called for its members with special forces and primarily special forces experience to engage in covert monitoring of polling places because the group anticipated that there would be large-scale voter fraud. Well, the national organization might call for that broad activity, might give it a a fancy sounding name like Operation Sabot, S-A-B-O-T, but ultimately it's up to locals and state chapters or possibly even just cells of, of members to coordinate with other members to decide what kinds of action they're going to take. And to a certain extent, we saw this on January 6th as well, where the national leadership really promoted some messages that that called into question the validity of the 2020 election, 
that suggested um, that certain action should be taken on January 6th to prevent President Biden from assuming office. But many of the people who actually showed up, and especially the ones who were first arrested for charges related to their activities in the J6 insurrection, seem to be members communicating with other members to coordinate their activity rather than commanders, if you like, issuing orders to their subordinates. So yeah, there certainly is this element of decentralization and autonomy, both for units that are not at the national stage and aren't necessarily directly answering to the national leadership, um, but also for individual members of the organization to decide what kinds of action they want to take. So you referenced in your answer there activities around the both the 2016 election and the 2020 election. I want to close at the end by talking about 2020, but I think it's helpful to first talk a bit about 2016. So how did the 2016 election, one, change the Oath Keepers' relationship with the government? And two, I just wonder if you could talk a bit about their activities around perceived voter fraud issues, election, quote unquote, election security issues, and even things around the 2016 inauguration. Yeah, there's there's kind of a lot to think about here. Perhaps one place to start is to think about Oath Keepers' stance or publicly stated stance on the, the candidates in that election. So one way that, that you could think of at least some of the leaders of the Oath Keepers organization is to describe them as radical libertarians. And if you take that seriously, which I really do try to take people seriously at their word, not not naively, but if they say that they believe something, I try to take them at their word um, unless they give me evidence to believe otherwise. Well, if you think that they're radical libertarians, you might not have expected the organization to support Donald Trump. And indeed, in some ways, they were either non-committed or expressed some reservations about the Trump candidacy. At one point after one of the general election debates, they even wrote a, a post I believe on their website, saying that they were concerned by some of the statements that that Trump made during that debate, where he seemed to be too amenable to increased federal gun control legislation. And they said that that would be a huge mistake and a violation of constitutional rights, etc. But it didn't take long for the organization to mostly and then entirely come to support Donald Trump. Part of that was because he was running against Hillary Clinton, and the Clinton name is anathema to this broader movement that Oath Keepers is part of, partially because Bill Clinton was uh, the president during Waco and Ruby Ridge in the 90s, partially because Hillary Clinton served as the Secretary of State for Barack Obama. You can imagine plenty more reasons for that as well. But by the election, Oath Keepers was firmly supporting Donald Trump and was also convinced that Trump would win the popular vote in a landslide unless there was wide-scale voter fraud. Ultimately, they were convinced by some of the uh, manipulative reporting that Project Veritas engaged in that allegedly documented plans by the employees of the Democratic Party to engage in voter fraud, which anytime Project Veritas says something is true, that seems like a prima facie reason to me to believe that it's not true. Um, And I never saw any actual evidence that the Democratic Party was engaged in voter fraud. And of course, we have never seen systematic voter fraud in the United States. I digress. Um, So at this point, we're, we're coming close to the 2016 election. And Oath Keepers is really anticipating that there's going to be voter fraud, especially in key locations. Philadelphia is one of the places that they really highlighted as they anticipated voter fraud taking place. So they decided um, that they were going to monitor the polling places for fraud to try to uh, gain additional evidence of the kind of thing that Project Veritas was alleging. They they spun up a whole operation, Operation Sabot, S-A-B-O-T, around that effort. Um, Of course, as we know, Donald Trump lost the popular vote, but he won the electoral college vote and was set to become the next president of the United States. And within hours, opponents of Donald Trump started organizing protests and demonstrations and started brainstorming possible paths to prevent him from 
from assuming office. So as soon as, as those patterns began to emerge, as soon as those protests began taking place, Oath Keepers decided that they were going to continue to mobilize. And this time they were going to have some of their members infiltrate different organizations involved in protest or um, brainstorming ways to prevent Trump from assuming office in order to gain intelligence and even disrupt some of those plots. They called that Operation Hypo, H-Y-P-O. As we continued to move closer to January 20th, Oath Keepers really began to promote this idea that left-leaning Americans, especially but not only Antifa, would try to engage in coordinated violence in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day to prevent Trump from assuming office. So the group announced that they were going to, some of their members would travel to D.C. to provide sort of backup or a supplement to the formal security provided by the government on that day. Um, And that operation was called Operation Defend J-20. Some uh, members of Oath Keepers did indeed go to Washington, D.C., including Stuart Rhodes, and they claimed to have provided intelligence to local police that prevented some sort of chemical irritant attack on the so-called deplorable, one of these inauguration parties that was happening under the auspices of the so-called alt-right. So throughout 2016, between the election and the post-election resistance to Trump, we saw Oath Keepers perceiving threats, some of which we might have sort of agreed with their empirical assessment of what was happening, some of which were a little bit more fanciful, perhaps. But they really perceived these threats and designed a series of actions that they were going to take in order to stand up for what they saw as American values and their American identity and the the person they believed to be the duly elected president of the United States. And then the 2020 election happens. So I wonder if you could just talk through, you know, what was the level of the Oath Keepers involvement in all sorts of things surrounding the 2020 election leading up to January 6th? So there, in a certain sense, is this pretty strong through line between the 2016 election all the way up to the 2020 election. In the run up to the 2016 election and the aftermath, Oath Keepers increasingly perceived left-leaning Americans as a threat to their man in office, to their candidate, and, and later to the person who was elected, of course. And that never really stopped. So we saw those protests that emerged just hours after Trump was projected to have won the 2016 election. And those continued for a pretty sustained period of time. And what we saw from Oath Keepers through 2017 and and 2018 was that members of the organization and even Stuart Rhodes himself traveling to different locations around the country and engaging in clashes with left-leaning Americans. So, for example, in Berkeley, California and in Boston, Massachusetts, Oath Keepers appeared at events that, that featured both strong supporters of Donald Trump, including people like Proud Boys and um, Patriot Prayer Organization and and others, and engaging in clashes with counter demonstrators who came out to oppose these Trump supporters, with the Oath Keepers arguing that even where they didn't agree with the ideas promoted by these different organizations that were there to to, um, support Donald Trump, that they would be present to support the First Amendment rights of those organizations to free speech and free association and those sorts of things. Over time, we saw the group engage in increasingly aggressive rhetoric about Antifa in particular, and also the Black Lives Matter movement. By 2020, Stuart Rhodes was calling Antifa and and Black Lives Matter either an international communist insurgency or an international terrorist organization, or both. And we saw members of the organization come out in defense of individuals who engaged in violence against some of these protesters, such as the, the man in Kenosha who, who shot several protesters, shot and killed several protesters during an anti-police brutality demonstration, a series of demonstrations after 
another black man was was killed by law enforcement. So we saw this increasingly aggressive rhetoric about these left-leaning Americans or opponents of Donald Trump and the ideas that Donald Trump uh, supported. And these were in many ways a continuation of the same kinds of, of threats and depictions of threats that we saw in 2016. And that continued in 2020. So in 2016, we saw the organization anticipate that there would be wide-scale voter fraud, and we saw the same thing again in 2020. And in the aftermath of the 2020 election, we saw Oath Keepers engage with some of the conspiracy theories about the the so-called stop the steal narrative. And they've been affiliated with Sidney Powell and, and some of these movements that have tried to file legal filings to demonstrate the illegitimacy of the 2020 presidential election, despite having no empirical evidence to support those allegations of electoral um, irregularities or, or whatever phrase you wanna to use to describe that. So by early 2021, we saw Oath Keepers, like many other uh, Trump supporters, continuing to think about ways to try to prevent Joe Biden from assuming office. Boy, you can't help but notice the parallelism there with the perceptions of threats that they saw from left-leaning Americans in the aftermath of the 2016 election who they believed were trying to strategize ways to keep Trump from assuming office. And ultimately, they um, decided, some members of the organization, including Stuart Rhodes, decided that they would attend the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th in Washington, D.C. And some members of the organization engaged in substantial planning for some sort of violence on the day. And as we continue to learn about through court filings related to the, the numerous federal indictments of individuals who are alleged to be affiliated with the organization, even in, in uh, planned to prevent the certification of the electoral college vote on that day. We have to wrap up in a second, but I wonder what you see next for the organization, right? So in the aftermath of January 6th, Oath Keepers have been subject of pretty significant criminal prosecutions, including, as we've talked about, Stuart Rose, but also many others. I'm wondering, where do you see the group as going from here, right? On the one hand, they, they did play this prominent role in something that they might perceive as important or, or central to their cause. But on the other hand, right, it's also been the cause in, in some tangible sense of big losses for them, right? Potential loss of their leader, you know, pretty significant negative media attention. What next for the group? So that's a, a difficult question to answer, like like several of the issues that we've talked about today. Before I directly answer the question, um, I want to suggest one important thing to keep in mind, which is that Oath Keepers is part of a broader movement of anti-government extremism in the U.S. And while it's true that it is a very visible and very prominent example. Um, there are many, many more Americans out there who buy into the same sorts of ideas, buy into the same sorts of political philosophy for those who spend any time thinking about the political philosophy and are not affiliated with the group. Even if we just think about group numbers, and even if we give, even if we just take Oath Keepers' uh, word on, on how many members they had, that was at most 40,000 before Facebook removed them for violating terms of service, there were groups and pages on Facebook for the organization that had hundreds of more than 100,000 likes and, and followers. So clearly, Oath Keepers as an organization is just one part of this broader landscape. And even if the Oath Keepers organization were to collapse tomorrow, I don't think that necessarily changes the landscape of anti-government extremism in the U.S. But if we do want to think about the Oath Keepers organization specifically, I think what we have seen since January 2021 is the group is going through this extended inflection point. In the immediate days after the insurrection, we saw some members of the group and even some chapters of the group decide that they would no longer be affiliated with the organization, pointing to opposition to what the group and some of the group's members did on January 6th. But some excellent investigative reporting has also found 
that some people joined or renewed their membership in the organization after January 6th as well. So we have this spectrum of people from wanting to distance themselves afterwards to wanting to more closely align themselves afterwards. Throw into that mix a certain subset of people who promote the idea that Oath Keepers weren't actually there, that it was Antifa dressed up as right-leaning Americans or, or something like that. So I, I don't think that there is a definitive trend of where the group is going. Um, certainly, the group has had has faced additional challenges over the past couple of years, whether because of being deplatformed from various social media platforms, having trouble with their website hosting capabilities, and all of the legal charges. To a certain extent, the organization is Stuart Rhodes in part given his uh, status being written into the group's bylaws. But it remains to be seen what that would look like down the line. So Rhodes is facing seditious conspiracy charges. Those are very ambitious charges that have not been used very often at the federal level and have often not been successful when they have been used. If Rhodes is found guilty on those seditious conspiracy charges, perhaps he could still remain leader of the organization, at least as a symbolic figurehead. I could easily imagine him being described as a political prisoner for years to come. Or it's also possible that prominent individuals within the organization, maybe even including Rhodes, decide to let the organization fall apart. And many of them might just transition to another form of anti-government extremism. We might think about three percenter groups that are out there that perhaps are seeing a recruitment boon given the difficulties that Oath Keepers is having now. All this is just kind of a long way of saying, I don't really know what's next. I don't know what's coming for the organization. I don't know if they're going to survive this inflection point that they've been going through. But also I think that the, the broader landscape of anti-government extremism isn't necessarily dependent on the status of Oath Keepers as an organization. And that is all the time we have for today. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Wofford Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shichu of Go Rodeo. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patihao. And your music is by Sophia Yan. If you like this episode, check out other podcasts in the Lawfare family. There's The Aftermath, a podcast about January 6th and efforts at accountability thereafter. There's Rational Security, there's Chatter, and there's Lawfare Noble, a podcast devoted to bringing you the important parts of primary source audio in the national security space. As always, thank you so much for listening. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.